This is episode 23 of the Higher Christian Life podcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Today, we're going to begin looking at the second of these three key truths that are necessary for you to believe and internalize in order to experience the blessings of the higher Christian life. As a quick reminder, truth number one, you must believe God is able to keep you from falling and faltering in your life of holiness, not just in your salvation, but in your life of holiness. That's Jude 24. Number two, that we're gonna talk about today, you must remove from your mind, and I mean completely obliterate from your mind all doubt and fear that for some reason he is not willing to keep you from stumbling. Everybody else, yes, you, no. And number three, once you've mastered the first two, you must learn to commit yourself as an act of total dependence to the Lord for self-keeping. It is his job to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy and not yours. So let's jump right into this together, shall we? As I shared with you, today we're going to begin looking at the second of our three key truths that lead us to the blessing of the higher Christian life. And as we have learned, the first truth declares that you must believe God is able, meaning he possesses the power and ability to keep you from faltering or falling in your life of holiness. And once the issue of God's ability is firmly settled in your mind, the second truth takes the first one that you now believe, but makes it personal. The second truth states that you must remove from your mind all doubt and fear that for some reason he is not willing to keep you from stumbling. That's right. Now the first truth must be applied in your life in an extremely personal way. It's no longer third person. It's now first person personal. It's kind of like when Jesus asked the disciples, who do they, the people, everybody else, but not you say that I am? Well, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead, one of the prophets. There's a lot of stuff going on out there about who you are. We're not talking about being detached. We're talking about making it personal. Then Jesus says, who do you say that I, the son of man, am? It works exactly the same way with truth number two. It is no longer about what God can do for others. It's about what God can do for you. And it's right here that many people falter. I mean, we believe that God is able to bless anyone he wants at any time he wants, in any way he wants, but for some reason, just not us. We even believe he's willing to bless his children, but again, just not us. And as strange as it may sound, this is like wondering if God loves you as much as you love him, which is both absurd and quite honestly, it's incredibly sad. Let, let me explain how this works. Sometimes there are believers, there are children of God who feel so bad about themselves that they cannot conceive in their mind that anyone anyone, including God, would love them as much as they deeply long to be loved, or as much as they would love them if they were God. They walk around with their heads down, depressed, 
unsure, insecure, uh, often filled with self-loathing, refusing to look at somebody else in the eye. And although there may be many reasons for them to feel this way, they may have come from an abusive home, had many fractured relationships, maybe they're victims of a dysfunctional family or rejection or betrayal. I mean, there's a million different reasons they could feel this way. But for the Christian, it seems like it usually stems from their unwillingness to forgive themselves for some sin or sins they committed in the past and the paralyzing guilt they often suffer from. For some reason, their sins or failures or disappointments or unfulfilled expectation looms larger in them than the grace and forgiveness of God. And this unhealthy mindset is often the reason that they mentally shun any idea of God loving or forgiving them, and they reject any attempt or any scripture or any truth that points to the fact that he does. Quite honestly, in my many years of being in the pastorate and in church, I find that the spiritual disease, as I call it, is far more widespread than you would think. So why unforgiveness, and especially why unforgiveness that leads to self-loathing or thinking God is the type of father who truly chooses favorites? Let's think about the whole idea of forgiveness for a moment. In Christianity, one of the key tenets of our faith is that God offers to forgive our sins, and that's past present, and future sins. And he does this based on the sacrifice his son made to die on the cross and pay the penalty for our sins and our simple faith in him and in the completed work that he accomplished. Jesus did all the work to secure our forgiveness and all the work to erase our guilt and the consequences of our sins that we rightly should suffer for all eternity. And all we have to do is believe. I mean, let that sink in for a second. It's like winning the lottery with a ticket somebody else bought for you. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 kind of emulates this truth. But God, who is rich in mercy, why? Because of his great love with which he loved us. When, even when we were dead in trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Did you hear all of that? What God has done for us? There is no downside, and there is no favorites in that verse. Now think about forgiveness. When we sin against someone, there are usually three people we need to ask for their forgiveness. The first is obviously God. We've committed a sin, we've hurt somebody by our actions, and so therefore we ask God for forgiveness. And according to his word, his forgiveness is guaranteed His forgiveness is instant, his forgiveness is complete, and his forgiveness has no fine print, no hidden clause, no legalese that somehow take away from us what we think he's given to us. It is absolutely 
secure. In fact, he goes even beyond forgiveness, and he goes a step further, and he says that he chooses his choice now to no longer remember our sins. That's in Isaiah 23, verse 25. God, the omnipotent, omniscient one who knows everything and is all-powerful, voluntarily chooses to not remember our sins anymore, to use them against us, but it even gets better. He also removes our sins and transgressions for us as far as the east is from the west. That's from Psalm 103, verse 12. And if you think about that, the east is from the west is forever. There's no poles like we have on the north and south. This is what God does with our forgiveness. So the first person we're to ask for forgiveness is God, and his forgiveness is instantaneous. The next one we need to ask forgiveness for is the person we have hurt. And since we've hurt a fellow human being who has fallen in nature like we are, they either will or they won't forgive us. That's their choice, and there's nothing we can do about that. It's out of our hands. We do our very best to humble ourselves, to ask for forgiveness, to admit what we have done wrong, and we will either be blessed by having that relationship restored if they forgive us, or we'll live the rest of our life with the hurtful consequences of our sins if they choose not to. Remember, our job is simply to humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness, and leave the results unto God. Now, here's the kicker. The final person we need to ask for forgiveness is ourselves. That's right, the person we look at in the mirror every single morning, the one that we have the hardest time forgiving. Because here's where it gets kind of sticky. Often, we freely accept the forgiveness of God. God, I've claimed 1 John 1, 9, I have asked your forgiveness, I received your forgiveness, and I feel great in my relationship with you. Then when somebody else actually forgives us, the one we've offended, then we rejoice in that, oh, thank you for forgiving me. It's so great that we're friends again. Then for some reason, our standard of righteousness inside of us is so high that we refuse to forgive ourselves and hold on to our bitterness, even though God has chosen not only to forgive us, but to forget our sins forever. It's like, God, you didn't handle it correctly. If you were really the kind of God that I would be, I would never forgive that person. As a matter of fact, we defiantly sometimes refuse to forgive ourselves, even when God has. I mean, how is that possible? What's going on in our mind? Well, here are three conversations that people sometimes have with themselves when it comes to not forgiving themselves. Number one, what I did was so bad that I don't deserve forgiveness. So I know what I'll do. I'll mope around and feel bad with a sad face forever for what I've done. And that will somehow make me feel better about myself. Really? How illogical is that? Or this one, you know, just asking God for forgiveness is too easy, and I don't deserve to get off that lightly. So I know what I'll do. I'll just punish myself by being sad for the next 20 years to somehow make myself feel worthy of God's forgiveness that you already possess. That's not a win. Or the third one, you know, if I were God, I would never forgive me. 
you know what? So I won't. He must be some big old softy up in the sky to forgive someone like me for what I did. You know, he needs to be more strict, more demanding like I am with myself. So I'll keep beating myself up for something God has already forgiven and that will make me feel closer to him, make me a better Christian, make me a lot more likable person. Not as far as you notice. Does any of this make sense to you? Yet it plays out all the time in our life. Consider, for example, this higher Christian life and being able to believe that God is able to keep us from stumbling in our life of holiness. When you believe that God is able to allow his children to experience the blessings of the higher Christian life, but don't believe he will do that for you, what you're saying is he plays favorites. What what you're saying is that you don't trust him. What you're saying is he must love other people more than he loves you, or your sin is so great that his forgiveness does not satisfy it. What a terrible thing to say about God, or especially your view of God. And when we do that, what we're doing is we're imputing motives to our heavenly father that if we imputed to an earthly father, we would say that man is abusive to his children. Why would we do that to God? I mean, often the reason is that we feel so unworthy or suffer from so much self-unforgiveness that we have to somehow justify why we don't believe God will treat us as good as he does other children. And again, that's a terrible thing to say about an earthly father, let alone God. What we're saying in essence is that we believe we love God more than he loves us. And you and I both know that's not possible. Remember, as we close today, who you are in him. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says this about all of his children, including you. The Spirit himself, who lives in you, of course, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if that wasn't wonderful enough, it says, and if children, then we're obviously heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Again, think about it. It's like winning the lottery with a ticket you didn't pay for. It really doesn't get much better than that. So today, would you commit yourself to believing without a shadow of a doubt that God is willing and is able to keep you from stumbling in your life of holiness? If he's done it for others, then he will also do it for you. Rejoice in him today and realize how truly you are loved. I hope this has been a blessing. Let's talk again tomorrow, shall we?